Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You've had a few controversies online. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) The Lydia Millen has been blogging for over a decade. Lydia's story is full of twists and turns. She has often stayed quiet on this and very, very rarely does interviews. My palms are really sweaty. One of the things that I think I've struggled the most with communicating online is my childhood. What were you like back then? I've heard that you spent summers in Ibiza. I had a job at Ibiza Rocks, Plastic, Eden. I would go from one job to the other and then I'd go out and I'd party. Where do you think that desire or enjoyment of earning money came from? For me, it all links back to I learned really early on that I couldn't depend on a lot of people. How do you deal with the criticism? I've been on the receiving end of cancel culture. See, I've lost count of how many times I've experienced it. I'm not about to feel sorry for myself. Do you think you have like an online persona? Such a hard one, isn't it? Failing in the way that I did, I didn't know how to cope with it at the time and it floored me. I didn't know enough. That's the long and short of it. I have never felt shame like that. If you could do it all again, would you be an influencer? I think that... What is up, guys, and welcome back to Working Hard, Hardly Working podcast. Today, we have Lydia Millen on the podcast. With a combined following of over 3 million on social media platforms, Lydia has been blogging for over a decade. Lydia began her journey in 2011, documenting her outfits as a student. Then, after a crucial repositioning towards kind of high luxury content, this expanded into huge online success for her blog, YouTube, and social media content. Lydia's story is full of twists and turns. She's gone from achieving three GCSEs at school to moving out of her parents' house and in with her grandmother and now building a life she says she's always dreamt of, which she shares with her followers online through her kind of opulent videos. Lydia has reflected on her past in her new book, Evergreen, published in October. Now look, it is no secret that Lydia has been involved in kind of public controversies in her years online and has faced significant backlash as a result of her content. Lydia has often stayed quiet on this and very, very rarely does interviews. So I'm very excited to be able to talk to her about this and her whole career and kind of her whole life online today. I consider that a huge privilege for her to feel comfortable enough to be in this space, to talk to her about it. And having done this interview, she really opens up on kind of what that's felt like but also what she feels like she's done wrong or not got right in those times and how that's developed her as a person and as a creator and where she thinks she can be better but also we as a kind of culture can have a better culture towards reacting proportionately to issues on social media. I really wanted to see a little bit behind the curtain into the Lydia Millen, her life what it's like behind this online persona, whether she feels like she has an online persona and really get into the kind of nitty gritty of that in this episode. I feel like we always try and have really interesting conversations with really interesting people. And I think that it's so often kind of this idea of like 
controversies or cancellation, it's so often shied away from. And I think perhaps that's what lends it to being such an explosion when it happens. Lydia's approach to it was really, really open and honest today. And I'm hugely grateful to her for allowing me to kind of dive into that a little bit more. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. As always, if you do enjoy it, please make sure to like, subscribe, rate, review, send it to a friend. But thank you so much. And I hope you really enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm very excited. I feel like we have a lot to talk about and I am very grateful for you coming on here. I'm going to get straight into it. I always ask guests about their early life, their childhood, generally because I feel like it's very important in who we turn into today. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what your childhood was like. I think this is one of the things that I think I've struggled the most with with communicating online is my my childhood because my parents were together for five years when they split it was almost like two worlds happened so my mum moved into a rented council house and my dad moved into a really luxurious man pad in Northwood so when I was at mum's house it was a very very different experience to when I was with my dad's side of the family only in the last few months I would say a year that I realized that that's actually really confusing for me because I'd explain to people, oh yeah, so I lived here. No, well, I also kind of lived here and I also, yeah, we went to our holiday home here and but mum didn't have that holiday home. So it was just, it was a strange one. And I think it's definitely been interesting understanding that I kind of felt like I had a really lovely experience in those first five years. And then it got really confusing and I've just never really been able to communicate it in a way that even makes sense to me. Right. And I think also if it doesn't make sense to you, then it's very hard to communicate your kind of feelings about it and how it cemented your kind of understanding of the world. Because Mm. I always think that like when I talk to guests about how their understanding of the world was formed and how their understanding of kind of where they stand in that world, Mm -hmm. like even as you were saying, like, did we have a lot of money or were we stretched or were we kind of actually incredibly privileged or whatever it might be? And your understanding of the world is I mean, most of the time it's developed by what your parents were like and the environment you grew up in. Mm. I can imagine growing up in two very different environments Mm. would have also created two very different sides of you in a kind of understanding of what it's like in either one. Mm. How did that form your kind of aspirations? I would say that the way that I I navigated it was I kind of started romanticizing my life in whatever iteration it was in at the time and I think that's something that has really stayed with me throughout my entire life from you know buying my first home or where where I was there in my first career to now is that I was like I kind of don't know where I am here I don't know where I am here so I'm just gonna make the best of what's here and always make the best of it no matter what situation it is it's meant that I've always felt really content Mm. and then when life gets better and I, I aspire to something new and I move into that stage of my life I find contentment there and I'm like this is nice this is this is more than I ever expected but buying my first home I never imagined that my mum's house was bought for her by my dad and I never imagined I'd be in that position and so I really sort of romanticized this house that was like an ex-council house where my wardrobe in there I used to call it my walk-in wardrobe I could stand in it it wasn't a walk-in wardrobe but it was that was my next step that was what I was aspiring to so I was creating that happy place there in the house in the situation that I was in because I kind of had to navigate 
understanding where I was at that time and the limitations of where I was at that time and then hopefully aim for the next stop. And am I right in thinking you moved in with your grandmother? Yes. Yeah, I did. Could you tell me a little bit about that? When I finished university, I moved back to where I grew up. I had a quite strained relationship with my mum in the early days. I think that's kind of a girl thing, but I think I held a lot of animosity to her then, which I don't hold now. I moved in with her. It really wasn't great. And I was sort of at this point where I was like, I don't know where to go. I've got my job here. And my grandma took me in. And I think that that was the moment where I really like, that was where I got focused because she's such an incredible woman, like the most formidable woman I have ever met. Gave me structure. She would listen to how I was finding my new career. And I talked to her about my blog as I'd started it. And she was very supportive, which wasn't something that maybe I'd always got from my mum. And so I had this, this experience of like the mum that I hadn't had. And it was a really sort of formative few years for me. I think I was there for two years is where I met Ali, my husband. I look back on those days and I'm like, wow. You talk about being at university and kind of graduating and what that was like. Mm -hmm. What were you like back then? I know I've heard that you spent summers in Ibiza. You've (laughs) talked about like the difference between you then and now. I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of like what was Lydia like then? Ibiza was so funny for me because I think that there's this like misconception about why people go there for their summers. But I was working three or four jobs when I was there. I was there to work because I loved it. I loved the environment. I was like a Duracell bunny. I just, I'd work throughout the day. I I had a job at Ibiza Rocks, plastic, loads of different places. And I would go from one job to the other and then I'd go out and I'd party and then I'd get up the next day, go to the beach for a little bit, go to work, go to the next job and just do do it like that all the time because I knew I wanted to have fun I liked making money and I've always liked making money. And so that was a way of me doing two things. I felt independent. I felt comfortable. I was earning enough money for me to be able to go and buy myself like a nice perfume. I wasn't, you know, living in a, in a flat that wasn't a nice flat when I was there. And I lived a really good life when I was there. So I was able to enjoy myself and I'd go home with money in my pocket and I'd go to university and I'd be able to then do my two jobs at university. I think that's where I learned how much I enjoyed making money Mm -hmm. and I enjoyed that that was something that gave me a lot of purpose it gave me a lot of focus one of the jobs that I did I I worked solely on commission I'd never done that before I'd worked in some fairly normal teenage jobs growing up but this was the first time I'd, I'd like it was my responsibility for me to get paid and that was probably the most money I'd ever made in my life and I was like oh wow what an experience. Okay, so it's not scary as long as I put in the work. And so it went on to affect my time at university because at university, again, I worked two or three jobs when I was there. Even though I liked to go out, I liked to do the student stuff, that wasn't why I was there. I was slightly older as well. I was 21 when I went to to uni. So I was working in a bar, I was working at Topshop because I still wanted to live a nice life and, and enjoy it. And where do you think that desire or enjoyment of earning money kind of came from? What was it that it gave you that you think motivated you further to make sure you made more and compromise other things? For me, it all links back to independence because I feel like I learned really early on that I couldn't depend on a lot of people. And so if I had enough money for me to do things, if I had all of my ducks in a row, I didn't have to depend on anyone. And I remember it took me a few years to pass my um, driving test. 
And so I used to depend on someone like my mom or, or whoever to drive me around. And that just having that where someone could hold something over me, I think that's where it came from that I, I wanted to not have to depend on anyone. And I think that that's something that my husband has had to learn to really understand because it, when I'm in any kind of situation where I feel vulnerable, I very much close down and I just focus on self-preservation, whereas I think most people look outwards and, and look for support. I'm not like that. So let's talk about the beginning of your online presence. Mm. How did that come about? I think for me, it was a frust- it came from frustration because I was at university and I really wanted to be working in fashion and fashion at the time was like the girl's career goal. That's what you wanted to, to do. And I wanted to be a fashion buyer and I couldn't, I couldn't get on the course. So I was frustrated. I was, I was studying something that was very, very helpful, but it wasn't keeping me inspired. Mm-hmm. And I had always had websites. I don't know if you remember Homestead. It was like Homestead where you, you just, I taught myself to code and I built websites and I would just write oh, on incredible. them before blogging. This is like when I was 16. So I knew what I was doing and I, I, I saw that some, I think it was like the, the age of um, Lily Melrose and those kind of girls. And I was seeing what they were doing. I was like, right, okay. I can take pictures of my clothes on the, on the floor, not even thinking to actually wear the clothes. I just like put a jumper on the floor, like really like this jumper and then write about it. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, wait, maybe I should wear the clothes. That's great. And then there was lookbook.new, which was kind of like Facebook for, for fashion. And I started posting on there and I saw quite a, a big sort of uptake on that. It just kind of went from there. And then I, was, I realized I was working at this on the weekends. I wasn't being paid then. But I loved it and I enjoyed it so much that I kept going at it and going at it. And I probably worked on it for like four years before I ever got paid, which is fascinating to see how far it's come now. Like the industry is just so different. And so my audience kept growing. Even when I pivoted and changed, my audience still grows today, which doesn't happen often. So I do think that it was just sort of like a natural progression, but I worked hard at it. I'm lucky that I come from a family of many entrepreneurs. My brother has done amazing things. And I always have a nod to this. What he said to me was, if you're not working until 2am, Lydia, you're not working hard enough on your business. Before I was doing YouTube, I would be writing my blog posts and I'd pour my heart and soul into those blog posts. And I'd be falling asleep at my laptop at 2am and just constantly working at it. I'd have an idea for a video. I'd film it there and then. And I was constantly trying to be at the forefront, the most content, back when the algorithm really kind of championed mass content. I just worked really, really hard. And then the job started coming in and I thought, wow, okay. I remember turning to, to my husband one day and saying like, this is a really unique position we're in because we get to invest our time and see if it pays off in a monetary way. We don't have to invest huge amounts of money in this. And I really didn't in the beginning. It was only when I had my first big pay packet that I took that money instantly and I invested it in a Canon 5D. It was actually the same amount of money that I put down on my first mortgage. So that was huge for me. And that was the first investment I ever made in it. And it paid off. And then I was filming videos on, on, on that camera and it really elevated my content. And I think that's the thing. You have to sort of catch the eye of brands and, and businesses. The next thing I know, I'm sat with some of the biggest beauty brands in the world having breakfast at Claridge's. And I was like, I'd never been. I was like, this is amazing. Now that I look back, it feels like it was like a skyrocket. But in reality, I, like I said, I've been doing this for so many years that it feels like a natural progression as well. So weird. <laughs> And your content is luxury focused. What was your decision behind choosing luxury? 
luxury is really subjective. And so I thought that my first house was really luxurious. We painted the whole thing white. We had really lovely furniture in there that, you know, I managed to get a, a good price or whatever. And so really I was just talking about the lovely things in my life and, and sharing what I thought was lovely. That's obviously progressed as my career has progressed. But those moments of luxury is something that I didn't realize that I was doing quite naturally and, and making often quite mundane aspects of life, like, you know, doing your hair. There's a way to make that a really wonderful experience. And cooking dinner. I always say whenever I cook a meal for my husband and I, I'm like, I get to cook this meal. And so for me, it's always been just about highlighting those elements of life. Sometimes, and very much in my early days, that did focus around the handbags, the shoes, the cars. And whilst that's still an element, I've learned that there are so much more. And I talk about that in my book, and it's, it, it's very much a balance. I find a lot of purpose in working, earning money. That's, that's a lot of purpose. But I may not find my happiness there or with the money that comes from that, or the, the things that come from that, I may not find my happiness, but my purpose is there. My happiness comes from the other things. And so it was just generally sh sharing that, that those were the things that I enjoyed talking about. The, so that's what I did. It wasn't really, I, don't, I feel like we didn't really think about it as much as we think about it now, as like, you know, what's your content strategy? There wasn't really a content strategy back then. It was just, this is what I like. This is what I'm interested in. And at the time, especially on YouTube, Nobody was talking about the handbags because it was still that very young market, kind of what we see on TikTok now, whereas TikTok is now in that, that progression that YouTube went through. That was what I did on, on YouTube. I was like, I, I kind of know that I want to watch this stuff. I want to know what's you know, a nice handbag to have. I want to know where to shop for X, Y, Z. In a month, I gained 50,000 followers, which at the time was very quick. Nowadays, we see numbers much bigger than that, but at the time, that was very quick. And the appetite was there, so I talked about it more. And I do think that that's very much what my audience enjoy. They, they like to, to hear about the nice things, some of them as an escape, others because genuinely they're looking to buy something. There's always a side of the audience that maybe it's not right for them, and I understand that. I try to, to do balance. I don't always do it very well, but I try. Definitely noticed that things changed when I moved to my house that I'm currently in. So whether it was the me in Ibiza or whether it was the me in my old house, I think it was, it was better received, me talking about the expensive handbags and things like that. It was better received when I was in my old house. I think when we moved house, it was, it was very, it got quite intense for a while. I understand, I, I do understand as well. So it is, whereas I think I'm just sharing the natural progressions of life, sometimes that can be stifling for other people when I get that. But I think that it's not easy to, to watch somebody change mm. and then also maybe feel like they're at a different stage in your life. The frustrations that come from that, I can only imagine. Right, whether yeah. perceived as better or worse or further along or less Absolutely. far along. Like I've had creators that I've loved or loved at university and then they got engaged and then they started families and I actually was kind of like, you're not disappointed, but you're kind of like, oh, I, I really related to that content. Yeah. And now I, I actually can't find that replacement elsewhere because it's actually probably one of the only industries where direct replacement is really quite tough. But I think it's so interesting because it's the walking a line of making sure you're evolving in your career and also your personality and who you are, whilst also 
thanking people and appreciating that they were there at a very different time mm. and that's going to be at the very least annoying but something you liked changed yeah one of the unique things about the industry is that a lot of the time your audience is very passionate I am so grateful for that and like part of me I often make you know I feel like oh god I wish I could have stayed that person that you took so much joy in but I can't I I'm like I'm I am somebody who really loves evolution and every day I like I learn something new and even just you know the, in recent years I feel like the whole world has gone through such a huge transformation recently and I have changed the most since we went into lockdown that was my my biggest shift right and I knew that that was going to be uncomfortable but it is like growth is uncomfortable we know the cliche sayings like growth is uncomfortable and comfort zones nothing grows there so we can all stay in them if we want to but that's not the person that I am and I'd like to think that some people will take the good from showing the evolution as well just like I take the good from your evolution I'm so grateful that you do so much for women in business like genuinely hand on heart the stuff that you've been sharing recently just I know congratulations on your very big day with um is it a million pounds in an hour? It was. That's on like, but I hope you realize that you talking about that is going to be creating a space for women where they can talk about that. Because I know I've never felt able to talk about my monetary wins and when I've I, I've never felt comfortable. So the fact that you're doing that means that there are going to be women in future that feel comfortable to show up with that kind of energy. So this side of of you now, I'm so grateful for because you make me feel comfortable in just even acknowledging so many things in my business that usually I'd be like, you know, we used to be so scared that people would find out how much I charged. Mm. Like I, I lived in fear that we were going to get an email from someone posing as a brand and that people were going to find out how much I charged. I don't want to live like that. And so when you do things like that, you really are helping so many people to be more comfortable with things. I feel more comfortable. Thank you. Thanks. I literally knew the second I shared it, I was like, this is going to come back to bite me. <laughs> the reality is, is that when you're having an amazing time in the sort of public eye, it gets hot. Lots of eyes are on you, lots of opinions. And it's the same with, you know, the last month that I've had where I've launched my book and I knew that it was going to get hotter. But I've had to learn over the years how to get comfortable in those situations and have processes in place. I don't know if you have like processes in place for how you deal with it or whether you're just like, nah, I got it. <laughs> I don't expect it, but I also do expect it. But mm. I also don't think I can really prepare for it. No. So I generally kind of roll with the punches. I know what I feel like I did right, what I feel like I did wrong. Mm. And I'm pretty happy with that. Mm -hmm. I want to, as a woman, show business success. I can't complain about the position I'm in. I do know that the negative of that is going to be the fact that it makes people very uncomfortable, mm -hmm. whether for justifiable reasons or not. I know it will. I know that it wouldn't make people anywhere near as uncomfortable if I was a man posting about that million an hour. Um, and I know that no one would think that was going into my pocket, a man posting about their business doing that, which it's certainly not. Even if it was, I would still have a right to post about it. But I do think that that's kind of the reality and if you're wanting to challenge things and you're wanting to be known as someone who did some things first you're also going to be pushing some uncomfortable buttons and you have to get comfortable with that yeah I like to not try and think that I'm always getting it right in fact I very publicly get things wrong sometimes can I just say I'm grateful for that too thank you <laughs> like genuinely though like this whole world this whole digital world that we're experiencing now where people can follow us along with things it's 
born because we wanted that human to human connection more. We'd had the celebrity endorsements for so long and they were just untouchable airbrushed images on, on magazines and adverts. And the reason why this has happened and this, the birth of social media in this way has happened is because we wanted human. We wanted more of that, so we wanted the messiness. But we're sort of in a funny stage now where we kind of want the the human, but we don't want the mistakes. And I think that the more we share the mistakes and the failures, and I think that's something that's, that is happening more. We, a lot of people are talking about this more, whereas before you didn't want to talk about where you maybe got it wrong or failed at something. Now we talk about it and mm. openly and again, these things make some people uncomfortable, but I think that you've got to be the, the person that stands up and says, I'm, I'm going to be part of the change. And as they say, first over the wall gets the bloodiest. And that's what you're experiencing now. I think that's a saying, or I might have just paired two different sayings together <laughs> to make it my own. Sense. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I know you speak in the book about kind of what people see on the outside is quite different from what there is on the inside. Could you talk a little bit more about that? And do you feel like you have an online persona? I almost feel like my online persona has almost been taken out of my hands. Like that, that narrative has almost been taken out of my hands to a certain extent. And I would say that I've definitely, in recent years, there's more of me now. Like on my YouTube channel, I'm, I'm much more candid and I show very much my sense of humor a bit more I definitely struggle on different platforms like mm -hmm. I'm not one of those people that like turns it on and they're like ah, 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 ah. I'm not I'm not like that I'm like unexpectedly funny when I do things <laughs> it just comes out no I can't it doesn't translate well quickly in on other platforms I would say on some platforms I may be perceived as almost like being like a perfectionist and perceived differently if someone wanted context around me they could definitely go and and, and find it I'm much better at, at sharing who I am and what I'm about and the things that that really matter to to me on my YouTube channel that's where you know my videos are an hour long you can get a acquainted with me I think that now I need to bring more of myself to, to other platforms and I think that that's where there's maybe a different perception of me which I am sad that that would be because I think that there's a lot of good that I do and I work hard and I'm doing, doing my best and I think that I'm quite open with a lot of things that, that happen in life and I share a lot and I'm quite a vulnerable person. I don't know how to be guarded online. I don't know if you're good at that. I'm not good at that. I'd love to know what does your daily routine actually look like? Like what's a, 
I kind of want you to make me feel better here about my personal, you know, the aesthetic of my personal daily routine. But I'd love to know like what it actually looks like. I think that I I struggle a lot with routine because my job is so here, there and every, everywhere. One day I'll be in another country. One day I'll be in bed, you know, getting a lay in. And so I have to have structure. One of the things I've learned about myself recently is that if somebody puts something in my diary in the middle of the day and there's nothing else before then, I don't know what happens to me, but I can't move. I can't do anything until that, because I'm so scared I'm going to miss it, that I just sit there and I'm like, I could do this. I've got an hour, but I don't want to start doing that. So I've had to really get quite good at having a succession of things before I undertake anything in the day so that there's, right, okay, this is what's going to happen here. Then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to get to that. So I do have to have a lot of routine and I want to, to give you the comfort that maybe I don't have. Sometimes I, I'm, I don't have a routine, but for the most part I have to, otherwise I don't get anything mm. done. And I know you share your routines quite a lot. You share your... Um, I operate like a child at school. Yeah. I must have a timetable yeah. at all times and that is the only way I operate. Yeah, I, I know that about myself now, that if I don't just even physically write it down, that's, I can't type it on a phone. I have to physically write it in my diary. And that's how I work best. And I do struggle with not having a routine and not having the ability to have structure in the normal way. Like I would love to have like every day where I get up 5, 6 a.m., work out, take the dogs for a walk, get ready for work, have to get ready for work. I can't, I'm, I'm not someone that can work in my pajamas. I have to get ready, makeup, hair, full outfit. But then I'll have an event that evening and I might not get home until three in the morning. And then I, the next day I can't get up until 10 o'clock. And that's my whole routine that gives me my most effective, most productive days. I, that's all gone. And so I do, I have to always on a Monday be quite strict with myself. I, have my PT session always like scheduled in on a Monday so that I kick off my working week in the exact same way as much as possible but yeah routine is is a a big one but I think we hear that quite a lot I think that it depends whether you're an evening person or a morning person but having a a set routine really helps but I I will operate in a world where that you can't it's not like a I start work at nine and I finish at five there are no lines. You've spoken about the need for council culture versus cancel culture. Mm -hmm. Could you talk to me about that a little? Well, I think we touched on this before and how a lot of the time our response nowadays is disproportionate to the issue at hand. I know I found myself in a number of situations where I've been on the receiving end of cancel culture. I honestly, I've lost count of how many times I've experienced it. I've had to understand the, the human response, the, the difference between, you know, being offended and harm and, and that kind of thing. And I've really wanted to look at this and under, understand it. And a lot of the time we're approaching situations that should be done through conversation, education, in the way that you would sit down with a friend if they said something or did something or made a mistake. You talk to them about it and you'd hope that they were able to hear you out and have a conversation and Instead, it becomes a very, very destructive environment online over things that, you know, most of the time, and absolutely, we need to hold people accountable for mm. things when they're like you know, crimes. You know, there are some really, really terrible things. And I don't, and that's not what I'm talking about here. Mm. Like those are, are very, very different. The general day-to-day of, of life that we talked about, like making mistakes, failures, it's in those moments where discussion, reflection is really where the council culture side of things rather than council culture is needed because it's just like when you're parenting a child. We've learned over the years that shouting at a child 
doesn't really help them much. Doesn't really get the message across any quicker. Speaking to them, having the conversation and giving them the time and the reflection on it, that's where children flourish. And I don't know why we, we can't apply the same level to each other, but I do think it's just a culture that we're in at the moment. And I think that that will change, but it's got quite disproportionate to a lot of the things at, at hand. And whilst I understand that there will always be people that are, are hurt by things, and that's important to acknowledge, but I really like to think that we could talk about things a little bit more. And as you say, you've had a few controversies online. I don't know what you're talking about. Personally, <laughs> <laughs> I have not a clue. I'm afraid to. Sorry, you got the wrong girl. It's not me. <laughs> Those days where that's happened, mm -hmm. and you can probably see it boiling up, mm -hmm. and you can probably see something, and you wonder whether that's going to be one that's going to go, mm. or whether it's not. Mm. Could you talk to me a little bit about what that type of day is like, or like the feeling, or what you notice, or any kind of similarities? Is everyone kind of different? First and foremost, what's important that I say is that I never mean any harm to anyone, and I think that that's like something that I always want to like underline is that my content is very vanilla. A lot of the time, it's me my dogs, my cat, my husband, me going to collect the eggs from the hens, me gardening. I might show you a few nice things. It's very, very vanilla. It's not a space where I necessarily set out to ever offend anyone. In fact, I want people to sit there with a blanket and a cup of tea and watch my, my video. That's what I, how I envision it in my head. That's, I think, really important for me to say because I, I never, ever want to offend anyone with what I say. And that really hurts me whenever that, that happens because... My Achilles heel is people not thinking I'm a nice person. And I've been very candid with that. Tough job to be in. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was really vulnerable about this in the beginning. I was like, yeah, I struggle with people not thinking I'm a good person. And I think that that's potentially why a lot of the things that have happened have centered around me not being a good person because that's my, that is my Achilles heel. And so in those moments, I'm naturally I devastated, devastated because I'd never want that. That's just not the type of person that I am. That being said, I've had to learn also who I actually am in those moments when it's quite intense and there's a lot of opinions and a lot of, a lot of the time, a lot of stories that aren't true that come out and you're just sort of like, oh God, I'm not about to feel sorry for myself. What I do is I understand the limitations of who I am as a person and I dust myself off and I just hope that I can do better in the future. That's genuinely how I want to approach every obstacle. Nothing is the end and I kind of hope as well that in the world that we're in I always envisioned that I'd be like the sweetheart of the industry that's definitely not me <laughs> um but what I hope that I can maybe be is that because this happens to so many people we we make mistakes we're human and I hope that other people moving into this space other creators perhaps they can see that there is resilience in that as well and just dusting yourself off knowing okay that was a tough one getting better doing better showing that that's what I really like to do is to just show that I'm a better person for it and I, it has made me a better person every single one of those situations I can promise I've always come back and I'm like wow that has made me so much better I like myself more for getting through it you speak in the book about the idea of failed projects mm. as someone who's living online mm -hmm. you've obviously got to be failing online could you talk a little bit about your experience with failed projects and failing online failure is something that I have only just got comfortable with I had no idea how to fail because I'd never failed 
Like I'd never experienced that at school. If I didn't think I could achieve something, I didn't bother with it. If I could achieve it, I did my best at it. So failing in the way that I did during the pandemic and and launching my brand, I didn't know how to cope with it at the time. And it floored me. And now I can see it as one of the best learnings of my entire existence. But I wish I was more like you (laughs) in that you're really good at confronting things there and then. I think that that's, and and I have to go away and I have to dissect things. I have to understand. I can't do anything without understanding it. I need to be able to rationalize something, understand every element of it before I can talk about it. And I think that, and I wish I could be that person that responds in the moment and says like, the right thing but I have to understand it first and I had to grieve for that project it was as much as it's been a few years I pulled a lot into that I, just like anything I do I wanted it to be great and it wasn't I remember when my best friend was like you just said you failed for the first time and I was like yeah. <laughs> what a day yeah no. <laughs> literally I was like oh. I had to go through the motions of grieving for something that I really thought was going to be great because you know that was what we did that was the blueprint you became an influencer you did really well at it you launched a brand and and then you think you're Grace Beverly and I'm like (laughs) (laughs) but genuinely I was like I I, we're learning now that that isn't how it works and actually I didn't know enough that's the long and short I didn't know enough and now I know more and so hopefully I can take the lessons of of that failure and wear them like a badge of honor because in the beginning it was a lot of shame, a lot of shame. And now it's like, it's, it's so fascinating to me to be able to turn something that I have never felt shame like that. And now it's like, yeah, love that for me. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, yeah, I personally had a great time yeah. there. <laughs> and what did you learn from that experience? I learned that I am a creative and I very much need people to rein me in on that element. I also learned a really, probably the most valuable lesson is about who you work with on things. And that I have taken with me into building my team now because the ride has to be with really good people. I'd rather have a business that does all right and be surrounded by really epic people and say that we had a great time doing it than a business that's doing exponentially well and I'm surrounded by people that no one cares about each other. No one's, no one's interested in each other. I couldn't do that. I really love to be around people that I have a good time with all the time. And so that's what it, that was one of my biggest lessons. And so if you could do the whole thing again. I wouldn't do it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I would. I would. <laughs> but even looking at your whole career, mm-hmm. if you were back to 18 you're considering your next steps. Mm -hmm. If you could do it all again, would you be an influencer? I think I confronted that very question even just recently where I genuinely for the first time I thought, am I going to keep doing this? I 110% would do it again. I would. And I think that the price we pay in this industry is because we had the perk of being in it early. And as with any industry in its infancy, there are growing pains. There are areas where it doesn't work. It does work. We learn new things. I mean, we're still a completely pretty much unregulated industry. To, to There's no like governing body of influencers. We have it for the sponsored side of things, but not the, 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 the actual industry itself. And so of course, we're still, we're still learning. Any person can become an influencer of anything at the moment. And so it's really early. And I would, 
I love the fact that I got to experience the early days because the early days were magic. Before the cultures that we see now, honestly, I'll never forget my first event that I went to. It was a Motel Rocks event and we had a cardboard cupcake tower and I have never enjoyed myself like more. <laughs> And it was just amazing. Thank you to Motel Rocks, yeah. who is not sponsoring this no, no. podcast. <laughs> I'm actually wearing Motel Rocks. No, I'm not. It's very on brand, Lydia. Yeah. But it was, it, and do you know what I remember? Because it, it, um, I think Lily Pebbles was there and she was uh, working with, is it Birchbox at the time? And so she was like, you know, she was one of the very, very first wave. And I remember walking in and it was just like, it was the golden age of this industry where, we were in the early days, the sort of awkward girls and guys that, that I didn't really have a lot of friends at school, at uni. So I found myself online and there we were in our awkwardness at a Motel Rocks event. And it was great. With the cupcake tower. Yeah, the cupcake tower. <laughs> but it was, and it was simple. Like it was just, it was lovely. And so I'm, I'm really happy that I experienced that side of the industry. It's not an easy thing to go through when you're going through the growing pains of any industry in that way. I do think that, that it will grow and it will evolve and it, things will get better. I'm also not one of those people that's very talented. So I was always going to do something like this, <laughs> to be honest. I hate it when people can like, I said this in my video not long ago, like when, when an influencer can all of a sudden like play the piano or sing. I'm like, <laughs> oh, you can play the piano, can't you? Oh, God, you're not allowed to be talented. We're supposed to be talentless. <laughs> Like this, is, this is the only job I could have done, Grace, okay? And there you are with your piano. <laughs> to be fair, I'm shit at the piano now. Yeah, not. It's, got, it's got really down. <laughs> but genuinely, I think that that's the thing. I, I like, I, I've really enjoyed the ride. The ups, the downs, and you've got to have the downs to experience. The high. And right. I've had some highs, like some incredible highs. I'm going to blow my own trumpet here. But like I have, I've, I've worked with some of the biggest brands in the world in my career. And like, I would never have ever had that opportunity. I tried to be a model. It didn't work. So... I, I did this and I, and it worked-ish. And so I've, I've had some amazing opportunities and I wouldn't change it for anything. I wouldn't. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end. Thank you for being so honest and open. It's really clear who you are. And I think that's really important in the midst of everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's clear you're a lovely person who means really well. And I think that's oh, my really Achilles all we can ask for. smiling right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Now that I'm starting to stop sweating, I'm, <laughs> I've had a really great time. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Working Hard, Hardly Working. Lydia, I think we can all agree, was incredibly vulnerable and open. And as I said, she very rarely does interviews. So I am so grateful to her for kind of trusting me with this conversation and trusting me in going further than a kind of profiling piece and actually talking about these specific things. Because I can imagine that's not easy to talk about when those things have happened. So I'm really, really grateful for that. So thank you so much, Lydia, and thank you for subscribing and listening to this podcast. It helps us to get incredible guests and to have conversations that hopefully you don't see too much online. That's really my aim after all. Thank you so much. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com much for supporting, it really means more than you know. <laughs> <laughs>